0: On this week's Brewbound podcast, we have Dogfish Head Craft Brewery co founder Sam Caligioni, who discusses how his company is navigating a competitive craft beer category and why he's bullish on the independent craft brewer seal. We've also got a roundup of the latest news items from the last week and some segments. But before we get to all that, we want to tell you about Brewbound Live, our two day conference for professionals in the beer, cider, and flavored malt beverage industries. The event is taking place at the Lowe's Hotel on November 27th and 28th in Santa Monica, California, and it will bring together a diverse group of thought leaders and entrepreneurs, including last week's podcast guest, Lynn Weaver, Brooklyn Brewery CEO, Eric Ottaway, Melvin Brewing co-founder, Jeremy Tofty, and so many others to discuss trends, challenges, and the future of the brewing industry. In addition to learning from the founders and leaders of breweries large and small, BrewBound Live will also feature discussions with cannabis entrepreneurs, the latest trends from the independent retail channel, consumer insights from Nielsen, and the findings of a $200,000 C-Store research project conducted by Anheuser-Busch. BrewBound Live is also a great opportunity to engage with fellow industry professionals who are interested in sharing ideas and discussing ways to move the category forward. We'll have a variety of networking opportunities throughout the two-day event, so plan to come to Santa Monica for a few days so you can take full advantage of the program we've put together. We hope you can join us in November, and to register for the event, please visit brewboundlive.com. That's brewboundlive.com. Okay, let's go. All right, welcome to episode six of the BrewBound podcast presented by BevNet, where we bring you interviews with some of the most well-known figures throughout the beer industry. Today is Thursday, October 18th, and my name is Chris Frenari, the editor of BrewBound. I'm joined by my co-host, fellow BrewBound editor, Justin Kendall. What's up? Uh, Not much. I'm full steam ahead on planning for BrewBound Live and getting prepped. Really looking forward to getting out to Santa Monica next month and spending some time talking about the... Future of the beer industry with a couple hundred of our closest friends. I must say, though, you know, this is where we usually do the news. And uh, last week's, other than last week's CBA news, uh, it's been relatively quiet, wouldn't you say? It's been very quiet. I think
1: a lot of companies are in that annual business planning mode right now. They're getting
0: ready for 2019. And so it's been a little slow yeah, but, I mean, our jobs don't end if uh, <laughs> if the news is slow. So there have been a few noteworthy items since our listeners last tuned in. Why don't you catch us up?
1: Yeah, we unfortunately learned the sad news this week that Bill Coors, the former chairman of the Adolph Coors Company, died Saturday at the age of 102. Coors was the grandson of Coors Brewing Company founder Adolph Coors, And he had a 65-year career with the Golden Colorado Beer Company. He's actually credited with creating the recyclable aluminum can for beer and soft drinks.
0: Yeah, and something else that we should mention about Bill Coors is, is that he was very interested in the quality of barley that is used in beer. Um, He purchased a farm in 1949 to begin experimenting with different types of barley, and he also worked to establish close relationships with barley farmers during his active years uh, with Coors. And innovation in barley production is especially paramount right now. There was a new study uh, that was released from climate researchers in the United States, China, and Britain that suggests climate change will severely impact barley production. Uh, Increasing heat waves and droughts could lead to a loss of as much as 20% of the United States beer supply and increased prices, uh, according to the researchers. So, if ever there was a time to, I guess, consider riding your bike to work an extra day a week or finding other ways to reduce your own carbon footprint, now's the time. Do it for the beer. Yeah, well, potential future barley shortages
1: notwithstanding, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania's Rivertown Brewing has a new owner. Mount Pleasant, Pennsylvania's Helltown Brewing placed the winning bid in a bankruptcy auction for the brewery and export, as well as Rivertown's Verona and Monroeville locations for a $2.1 million bid. Wow. Yeah. And finally, one closing and one pivot to mention, Four String Brewing Company in Columbus, Ohio, has closed. And in Chicago, Burnt City Brewing will close its existing production brewery and brew pub next year. Burnt City is scaling down as it moves its operations to a new facility in a growing brewery district in the Windy City. This has been an ongoing story this year. We've written dozens of times about brewery closures, shifting strategies, and the continued impact that slower growth within craft is having on businesses within the space. Brewers Association Chief Economist Bart Watson has said that as many as 300 breweries could close this year and this is a storyline we
0: will continue to watch over the coming months Indeed and uh, the brewery closure issue was one of the topics that we touched on uh, with our featured guest this week Dogfish Head Craft Brewery co-founder and CEO Sam Calagione I was fortunate enough to catch up with Sam at his company's annual distributor meeting in Baltimore last month, and we talked a bit about how breweries can avoid taking on too much debt to grow their operations, uh, which has led to some distressed situations around the country. Uh, During our conversation, we also talk about the benefits of remaining a small, taproom-focused brewery in today's competitive marketplace, how Dogfish Head has financed its own expansion in recent years, and how his company is, quote-unquote, navigating the noise as uh, 7000 breweries all compete for Mindshare. He also touches on why uh, he and Dogfish Head are so bullish on the Brewers Association's independent craft brewer seal. So without further ado, here's Sam Calagione. All right, Chris Frenari for the BrewBound podcast, and we are in Baltimore, Maryland hanging out with Dogfish Head founder Sam Calagione after his 2019 distributor meeting. Or distributor planning meeting, I should say.
2: Yep. So good to be here with you, Chris. What does move wicked fast mean? That's
0: what it says on your hat there. (laughs) I got this hat from my friend Carlos. He works in the real estate division at Facebook. Facebook, Boston. Nice. um, Yeah. So he heads up the real estate in the uh, the Americas and leads their team. And he gave me this hat. It's their... Facebook Boston hat. It's badass. Move as, wicked fast.
2: As a fellow masshole I like seeing wicked used everywhere
0: possible. <laughs> I think this is the only wicked thing I own. <laughs> so yeah, we, let's kind of start with the distributor meeting since it's so fresh and the theme was navigating the noise. And, you know, I, I kind of want to hear just your, your definition of what that noise is in the beer space and, and how Dogfish is navigating it.
2: Yeah, well, I would just say the noise is relative. It's an awesome moment to be a beer lover in America. There's never been more breweries in America than there is today. Uh, there's two new breweries opening every day in America. There's always room for another awesome, well-differentiated new brewery in every sizable town in America. But, you know, at 7,000 breweries, the count of breweries has grown like 20% in the last 16 months. Yeah. And our industry only grown at 2%. So you do the math... It's going to be a challenging moment when really demand for beer in general and craft more sophisticated specifically is (laughs) eclipsed by supply. So consumers, distributors, retailers, everyone's going to have to make choices right now on which brands they believe should succeed and navigate the shakeup moment and which ones frankly need to go by the wayside and it'll have nothing to do with scale. There'll be awesome little craft breweries, tasting room oriented breweries that navigate this competitive moment. And there'll be great national brands like dogfish and Sierra and stone and Sam Adams that navigate this moment, but dogfish, Dogfish really needs to stand up for Dogfish at this moment and talk to our distribution partners because we sell 99% of our beer through our distribution partners. But we're talking about why we believe we deserve to go up their totem pole of priorities when you look at all the different suppliers in their houses.
0: Yeah, almost 7,000 breweries out there now. And Bob and Bart from the Brewers Association have guaranteed that before the end of 2018, there will be 7,000 breweries. What sort of strain has that put on a business like Dogfish Heads now that you're, you know, nearly a nationally distributed brand, but for all intents and purposes, a national brand in terms of awareness and distributed all over the country and, you know, in so many markets? And gosh, I mean, you guys are,
2: what, top 10, top 15? So like 12 or 13th. And so I talked today about the smiling jaws of death and that, you know, there's really now two jaws in the beer craft beer world. There's the lower jaw that has tons and tons of tiny teeth, (laughs) which are the local hyper local breweries, mostly oriented towards a taste room, tasting room sales, their own facility selling full strength retail price per pint out their front door and to go very viable, very financially strong model. Lots of them will navigate this competitive moment with grace and aplomb. And then in the top, the top level are the big ass, uh, big ass teeth, the volume brands that, uh, you know, are either indie brands like dogfish and Sam Adams and Sierra and Yingling and bells and, and then, affiliate brands that are really owned by global conglomerates, but market themselves like they're American indie craft breweries and there's going to be a lot fewer brands that move from that lower jaw to that upper jaw than when dogfish was coming up the ranks and you think of how tiny bells started and how tiny Stone started and you know insert brewery name here that started small and became a top 50 brewery that opportunity I think is going to be a lot harder because you're either going to in this moment you either keep your strength by focusing on hyper local or you got to invest a shit ton ton of money and resources into breaking through the noise of those top 50 brands to go up the ladder of your distributors. There's very little opportunities in between. There's a lot of breweries that are over their skis in terms of investments in their equipment, but also over their skis in terms of 5, 10, 20 state distribution network, but they don't have the resources to support a broad geographic distribution base.
0: Yeah, and and that's been one of the areas that you guys have really beefed up over the last couple of years I think you guys have quadrupled your sales force over the last two to three years you guys have invested $145 million into CapEx projects and the hospitality side of the business and equipment. Right. And we
2: were sitting <laughs> next to each other when George, our president <laughs> said that number, Chris, and we just looked at each other like, holy shit. I didn't even know we had $145 million. <laughs> turns out <laughs> we've spent $145 million because <laughs> that included not just the dollars we spent on a equipment or, but it includes all the people and branding
0: you know, and marketing and, and, mm-hmm, and everything. Mm-hmm, all of our spends. Yep. So, So how do you avoid getting out over your skis when you spend that kind of money over what is a pretty short period of time? I mean, five years is a long time, I guess, in the beer world. Things change rapidly, but in the scope of a business, an entire business's lifespan, five years is pretty short
2: yeah and that's a great question and and, you know my advice to folks that are opening a brewery i never say don't open a brewery you know because it's too competitive or i don't want you competing with me i say hey if you're if you're maniacally focused on quality consistency and being well differentiated go for it follow your dream open a brewery but i also in the next sentence say when you write that business plan Try and figure out not how big you can open and be financially viable. Try and figure out how small you can open and be financially yeah. viable so you don't go out over your skis and too much debt and, and then you're making desperate decisions. And I, my yeah. heart goes out to great people like at Green Flash or or Smutty Nose that probably built distribution in far away from their home markets. And then when shit got competitive, It's hard to keep your brand viable and top of mind with distributors, retailers, and consumers far away from your market if you haven't built a brand with great consumer awareness and excitement nationally. So going in concentric circles from your little brewery and growing methodically is is really critical. And so for Dogfish, we also saw Mariah and I said, okay, this is going to be a shitstorm of competitive moment. We can either press the discount button and try to get through this by focus on top line growth and force our distributors to do more of our sales and marketing initiatives by just saying, Hey, we're giving you a beer really cheap. You sell it. Or we could double down on our 23 year commitment to being known for innovation and, you know, commanding higher prices. But to do that, we're going to have to invest a shit ton of money in really great people and marketing spends and programs to validate that, premium position and go up. So either way, either strategy, you're spending a shit ton of your operating profit to navigate the competitive moment. You either spend that OP on by dropping your revenue per barrel and you're making less money because you're selling your beer super cheap, or you spend that OP on great people and programming to sell the story of why your beer deserves to cost more money. And that was the route that we've taken.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, when you think about a number like 145 million over that five-year stretch, I would have to guess that the way that you financed that was incredibly complicated. I mean, not only do you have the private equity transaction with LNK, I'm assuming there's probably a lot of bank debt in there that went into that $145 million, as well as the, you know, operating profits that you mentioned. I mean, it seems like a crazy puzzle that you have to find all the right pieces in order to make it work. How does somebody start thinking about putting that puzzle together if they're, you know, thinking about taking that next step in their business?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a great way to look at it, those three ways that it's expensive to run a brewery. <laughs> yeah. And for clarity, you know, Ellen K's. We, Mariah and I have always had minority investors in our company, my father, her father, my orthodontist, her uncle. And uh, right now, Mariah and I, our family owns 85% of dogfish, and we have Ellen our minority partner, in for 15%. And they're a, a private equity group that's known for taking minority positions in companies and not trying to demand a pathway to control that's the quiet reality of how a lot of these deals work but just come in for you know five six seven years to give up their resources and their experience and L&K has been known for helping high-end brands from Calvin Klein, Levi's, Ariat, Boots, Nyman's Ranch. So they came in and been really helpful to us on getting our focus on the right metrics and come to market strategies, top to top meetings with chains across the country. Very, very effective. But then you look at the other components and they'll and we've done great with them, but the plan is for they'll exit within a few years. It's not like they're taking, you know, we want to go towards an IPO or anything like that. We learned from them. They gave us a bunch of money to invest in Dogfish. Mariah and I will, in Dogfish, we'll pay them out with a premium for what they've taught us in the next few years your other one was bank debt and I think the biggest thing small breweries that want to grow fast need to really look at is their debt-to-equity ratio. Mm. So Dogfish operates at about a one debt-to-equity ratio, meaning if we stop spending money on CapEx and new projects, we could pay off all of our bank debt in one year. Mm. And so we're not out over our skis with with bank debt. Uh, I think we've got less than $25 million in, in bank debt, so and we can pay that off in about in about a year and then uh, the other component really is cash flow and so most of what dogfish has done to fund that 145 million over the last five years is just invested all of our a giant chunk of our profitability you know Mariah and I haven't taken dividends other than to pay you know our tax obligations we don't give ourselves a bonus even though our company has a great has had you know great bonus program through the years Mariah and I haven't even increased our salary in the last few years because we know every penny of profit, we got to think hard about where do we spend this to stay strong for ourselves, for our distributor partners to navigate this competitive moment.
0: Is the debt piece of it like the most crippling for a lot of breweries that are looking at expansion? Because that seems to be the thing that's pushed like so, like the green flash and the smutty noses over the edge. And it also seems like the one area that you know, brewers have continually turned to over the years, you know, financing all of their growth with debt when, you know, interest rates were super low, but it's now kind of, it seems like coming back around to haunt at least a few of them.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think every, every case is different, but I'd say a major contributor is bank's Are willing when craft beer was a super hot double digit growth industry. A lot of banks and private equity groups wanted to get in and made some risky deals based on maybe two or three year backwards looking growth trends of breweries and you know, guesses of where the industry is going in the future that frankly aren't paying off. And so they're calling loans and, you know, so yes, I'm getting, I wrote a book called Brewing Up a Business about starting dogfish where I talked even about how much it cost me, where I got the money from, that I did it with private loans to me personally, not bank debt to start. And a lot of folks emailed and called me that said, hey, if I read your book, I'm opening a brewery, da-da-da-da. And I try to give them advice three, five, ten years ago Now I get more emails from people that wrote my book saying, hey, uh, my bank's about to call my loan or my wife and I haven't been able to take a salary in 18 months. Will you buy my brand or will you, how how do you help me navigate? Can you help me navigate bank debt? Can you form a consortium of brands and help us with the back side of our business? Uh, You know, so some really, you know, scary asks of us and we're not alone, I'm sure. Ken Grossman gets those two and Kim Jordan, et cetera. But there's a lot of folks right now that are scrambling because of the dire situation of being out too far over their skis with, with debt in this competitive moment and not growing.
0: Have you thought about doing something like that, like putting something together?
2: You don't know. No. I mean, Mariah and I, and never say never, but you know, Mariah and I really look at the filters of what's important to us, that the highest level, the two equally important filters to us are keeping Dogfish Head within the community of indie craft. And as I said earlier today, we believe the line in the sand that's the most established is the BA's definition of indie craft. Equally important to us is making sure strategically Dogfish Head's opportunities to grow and be known, you know, nationally first, but hopefully someday globally as the most thoughtfully adventurous craft brand. And that it stays as viable for me and our co-workers for the next 23 years as Mariah and I have made it for the last 23. Those are the two biggest filters. The other thing that is important to us is Joni family leadership. I'm a brewer first and a business person second. I love innovating beers and staying super involved is the other other filter. And if we're going through those three lenses, that's more important to me. I'd never say never about you know, is there a collaborative opportunity? Maybe, I don't know, but we're not working on it. You know, we have awesome conversations with brewers, just more about the state of the industry, brewer friends. Mariah and I are going to Asheville in a week or two to brew with Ken Grossman and Brian. I'm sure over beers, we're going to talk about where's this industry growing, How are you guys navigating with distributors, you know, and navigating the noise? We'll be talking about navigating the noise, but more just in camaraderie than any official collaborative capacity. Yeah. Uh, but never say never, you know?
0: Sure. You brought up the Indie Seal, the Brewers Association Independent Craft Brewer Seal, which was launched about a year ago. And they recently announced a, a whole campaign behind it. And they're really investing serious dollars behind promoting the independent craft brewer seal. And There's something like almost 4,000 brewers now that have signed up to license this image and put it on their package. You're taking sort of the biggest bet on this seal by slapping it very largely on...
2: As big as we can physically (laughs) get it on our our biggest selling beer.
0: Yeah, on one of your flagship products, one of your two flagships, and that's 60-minute IPA, and it basically takes up half of the six-pack, more or less. first question is, why? And second question is... What do you risk by making a decision like this, like putting something that isn't technically yours as like one of the most striking, most observable pieces of the brand package?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you could ask that question of how much are we risking by not celebrating blatantly in and in your face that we are truly an indie craft brewery and I got my hats off to Bob Pease and the board of directors and leadership at the Brewers Association which is the trade group that represents the vast majority of America's indie craft breweries to say you know that uh It's not a denigrating thing, this line in the sand. There's good people that work at at breweries that are outside the definition. But what is frustrating is there's a lack of transparency, a lack of authenticity about who really makes the brands that you think come from Indie Craft Breweries. For example, we shared at our distributor summit that even though it was the Indie Craft Breweries from Dogfish to Harpoon to Yards to... Uh, stone to uh, Russian River that brought the excitement of the IPA category, that was pretty much a dead beer. You know, today's millennial beer drinker that's waiting in line for a juicy New England-style IPA at Treehouse or other half probably thinks the IPA style has always been ubiquitous and at the center of the craft movement. But as early as 12, 15 years ago, the best-selling styles in craft, as defined by IRI, were ambers and pales and seasonals. It was the Indy Crapperies America that revived this tired old English beer style and captivated a global beer, you know, imagination. And yet today, because of their strength, the global brewing conglomerates have been able to take that IPA style and start dominating the U.S. retail environment, whether it's Heineken's brand, which is called Lagunitas, or uh, Anheuser-Busch's brand, which is called uh, Elysian. And so we want to stand up with our IPA and say, look, this is one of the most uh, inventive IPAs ever brewed in terms of our unique continual hopping process. But it's also a brand that can stand proudly with that seal that says we are an indie... IPA-centric brewery, and we are going to lean into that and be proud of it. And some consumers aren't going to give a shit, and they're just going to say, oh, whatever, what's the cheapest 15-pack of IPA? I'll buy that. God bless them. But at least they'll know ours is truly indie if they want to make that choice, and then it's up to them. Now, what happens if
0: another company decides to make a similar move? Because you're licensing this image from the Brewers Association, so you don't own it. It's not something you can trademark personally. What if somebody else in a green IPA package decides to do the same thing? Like, walk me through what happens then. And
2: we win. We want this seal to gain traction, not just with dogfish, but with the consumer. And we're going to need all brewers that can lean into the seal, whether it means making the seal big or just talking about it or putting it on the door of their tasting room and whatever. We want others to embrace it so we understand by going this big with the seal some marketing type people would say oh well then that's if it's successful everyone's going to copy it Unlike Sequench Ale, where frankly I do get pissed off when people come out with beers that are blatantly copying what we did for White Space with Sequench, this idea of making the seal as big as we possibly can, I'm excited that other brewers will consider whatever their hopefully unique version of further embracing the concept of the seal is.
0: Yeah. Well I mean it's it's certainly a bold move and clearly I mean the the sort of boldest move we've seen from an independent craft brewer as it relates to the seal.
2: And you were in the room today you you heard people excited and clapping that we're stepping up with this, didn't you?
0: Yeah, I mean I think it's going to be interesting to watch the reaction when it does actually hit the retail shelves and I'm really curious to see if it does move the needle any or if you're able to, you know, point to any specific data after a few months to say, well, look, we made this decision and look what happened to sales yeah. immediately thereafter.
2: Yeah, me and, too.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's going to tell you everything you need to know, right? Now, you, you mentioned that you were going to be heading to Asheville to hang out with Sierra Nevada. and We're
2: brewing our beer. We, we did the first ever collab with Sierra Nevada, Life and Limb, nice. uh, made with grains from the Grossman Family Farm and maple syrup from mine and Mariah's. Farm in Massachusetts, so we've gotten a lot of folks saying, "Bring that back." The way folks have said, "Bring back seventy-five minute," or "Bring back American Beauty." So we're bringing back life and limb with Sierra Nevada. And
0: you mentioned being able to sit down with a guy like Ken Grossman and talk to him about you know where this industry is headed and just how they plan on moving forward. And, and they're a company that's particularly challenged. And they have been over the last couple of years, the only two years in their history where, you know, sales actually declined. And it's tough out there. I mean, the top, amongst the top 50 brewers, half of them over the last two years were either in decline or flat. It's really challenging for a large regional craft brewer. And you talked about the jaws of death. So as you start to peer into kind of your crystal ball Knowing what we know about the last couple of years, what's happening currently, where do you see things shaking out in terms of brewery closures, where regionals fare? I mean, mm. where is all of this headed?
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, Sierra Nevada, uh, you know, I think of both Sierra Nevada and Sam Adams, you know, Boston beer, I should say, some truisms from the eighties would be never put baby in a corner <laughs> and another truism of the eighties would be never count Jim Cook or Ken Grossman out. Are you are you Patrick Swayze in this scenario? <laughs> I can't tell where I'm going with that. Other than to say, Ken Grossman and his, a great team around him, Joe Whitney, Brian, I got great respect for those guys. They've done an awesome job with Hazy Little Thing this year. Jim Cook, I know he's had challenges in the beer industry. I know overall his portfolio is doing great this year. Those brands have great leadership, and they're going to navigate this moment. One year's trends. You know, I don't think make a, a brand, especially one of those sizable ones that have power of distribution, yeah. they're going to be all right. They might have a, a down year. That doesn't mean that long term their their brands are in flux. But you heard Bob P say, there, he admits it, there's going to be a lot more closings. But I think we as an industry, and you guys, I'm pointing to you as a media, uh, <laughs> need to keep our eye on how's the overall Growth trajectory of indie craft. There's no doubt that as we watch that overall growth of indie craft, there's going to be more churn to talk about. Ooh, look at this brewery went out of business. Look at that brewery went out of business. I also don't doubt that the room full of MBAs at ABI will be in there taking plays off the shelf from the late 90s when they, they came after Kraft and said, oh, look at these, these little breweries have bad consistency. They're going out of business. It's the death of, of Kraft. They're probably going to fan that flame, I'm guessing, when, when there's more announcements of, of closings. But if we all keep our eyes on the health of the overall trajectory, not the opening and closing rates or ratios, I think we'll see that craft is viable and strong for years to come.
0: What scares you the most about the future?
2: Oh, it scares me most about the future in the if it's beer not, business? If it's not closings yeah. and
0: and you're still pretty bullish Honestly, on the it overall... Occurs. It's
2: just the commodification of craft. It's yeah. craft being something where people are like, oh, beer? That's something I'll never pay more than a buck a bottle for now that you can get a $15 15-pack. 15 that, that scares me the most. When that same consumer's not saying... Tequila is something I'll I'll only spend X dollars an ounce on, a beautiful minerally Pinot Gris, something I'll only spend this much per ounce on. But unfortunately, there's a lot of attention on this lower priced craft right now that I think it's got a place in the marketplace. But if it dominates too much, the whole three tier world is going to be is going to be in trouble.
0: It's forcing your hand a little bit, too. I mean, you guys are are not trying to lower your pricing, but you are trying to remain competitive. So it's possible that we may see on some packages uh, pricing decrease a small bit in order to remain competitive with some of these packages, like you mentioned. But obviously the focus for Dogfish is still being, you know, that premium craft, super premium craft, top of the pyramid pricing overall when you think about the sort of pressures that pricing is putting on your strategy, how do you plot a course forward to be able to remain competitive and still maintain that high price point like you want? I mean, those seem like two divergent things.
2: Yeah, Uh, it's a good point. And so we start by saying what strategy allows us to keep our position as the number one strongest priced craft brewery in America. And we build that strategy around it part of that strategy is recognizing that a brand like 60 minute that isn't growing in part everything we're hearing from distributors and retailers is awesome liquid awesome innovation with continual hopping but it's a six percent ryan heights abv in that way, it's not that different from other top 50 IPAs, and yet you're 20 or 30% more. So that package, we do have to be more tactical per local geography on our pricing. But then at the same time, we're introducing American Beauty with a target price to consumer nationally of $14.99 a six pack so yes on certain packages strategically we got to recognize we want to stay number one but within sight of the number two price brand but on other packages we're still leaning into innovation and to an extent that allows us to charge $15 or $12 a six pack and we're not talking about changing pricing for ale or 90 minute but it is 60 minute Certain markets aren't going to change prices, but certain ones we, we are going to with 60-minute.
0: Yeah, so it's just stratifying it a bit more.
2: And to some extent, just organically, as consumers are choosing lower sessionable ABV beers more and more, our Namaste is up like 10%, Seaquench is up uh, and 70%. And so just by virtue of portfolio mix, those beers are lower in alcohol. We charge less for them than 90-minute or Bitches Brew. So our average revenue per barrel is dropping a little bit, not because of discounting, just because of our portfolio mix.
0: Sure. What's really interesting about this pricing discussion, and I was talking about this last night with some of the wholesalers, and I'll totally butcher it, and I'm sure I'll get an email from Lester Jones over at the oh, NBWA. Hi, but you know, I think he had presented a slide earlier this year at one of the industry events that showed that beer as a category over the last like decade or so has taken price up like over 20%, you know, mostly driven by the larger companies. They've been taking price and taking price and taking price. And at the same time, you have wine that's taken price like 3% and spirits has taken price like one and a half percent over that same period. So those two categories have remained much more consistent as again, mostly the larger brewers have continued to drive the price of their products up. And at the same time, we've seen consumers shift their drinking to those categories. So there is beer yeah. So there is some correlation there. It seems possibly.
2: I'm glad we're looking at that as an industry, you know, because I guess if it's a Harvard Business Journal case study, you'd say, "Wow, these foreign conglomerates that are driving price up on beer in America." are really good business people because they're learning on ways to better maximize quarterly shareholder value. Exactly. But if that case study was to review the effect on the overall beer industry over a decade, not over a quarter of earnings, what would they say? Because really what we're seeing a lot of, from my perspective, is harvesting of profits out of America. And they're not being reinvested in sustaining excitement or innovation in the American beer industry. They're just being harvested out of our country's profit pool. Well, they're
0: satisfying the shareholders, no doubt. But what's the impact on the broader category that that's had? And it seems like the impact is that we've just driven consumers away from beer because they're now price sensitive and they can get a a cheaper Product And it can take them a lot further. Their, their buzz can go a lot further in some of these other categories. So it seems like there's actually not a whole ton of opportunity for beer as a category overall to really take price up much longer. How much pressure will that put on a brand like Dogfish that is so committed to having these higher priced packages, being that brand that drives the basket ring up for retailers? I mean... When you think about that decade that we've just gone through, how do you as a brand continue to be at the top of the pyramid when there's fewer and fewer opportunities to keep taking price?
2: You know, I'd want to say I think there's a distinction between a global brewery that's raising price on what's supposed to be the most consumer price-friendly style of beer, light lager. Absolutely. And they're taking price up aggressively on the cheapest style of beer, which, to your point, I think is driving some people away from beer. I think that's fairly distinct from a brewery with true, valid consumer-understandable innovations, whether it's Sequential, Life and Limb, American Beauty, that we show on the silhouette of the package. Not only does this beer have water, yeast, hops, and barley, but it has this beautiful honey and this granola in it, things that consumers say, yeah, it's a 30 or 40% premium, but wow, there's a lot more ingredients and cost that's going into it. So I think it's, I perceive it as still a good value at that point. So I think Dogfish just has to be more, thoughtful about innovating at different price points now than we were 10 years ago when we could just always innovate on the high end and just keep growing you know barely keep up with demand now dogfish has to be more catholic small c about making sure a third of our innovations happen in the premium craft category a third happen in super premium and a third happened in apex that's really how we think about how we spending our innovation time in dollars
0: yeah i know we got time for maybe one more question here what would be, thinking about everything that we've discussed, just kind of where things are headed from a pricing standpoint, the headwinds that are blowing at craft right now, all the noise, as you call it, the pressure from the larger brewers, the death by a thousand cuts from so many smaller brewers, the lower jaw. What would be your sort of advice to other entrepreneurs out there and brewery business owners as they too navigate the noise?
2: Yeah, I would just say, If you're big and we're all small as indie craft brewers, I mean, it's pretty fucked up when you think about the fact that the two biggest single American owned breweries each control about quote unquote control about 1% market share, Yingling and Boston Beer. I would tell all these entrepreneurs of all different size breweries, though, in this competitive moment. If you define big in craft of, let's say, over 100,000 barrels, because you're probably top, whatever, 80 or 100 at 100,000 barrels, I'd say at this moment, if you're big, you better be ready to go big during this competitive moment. And if you're small, you better be ready to stay small in this competitive moment. Meaning this is the wrong time if you're a tasting room brewery I think, to build a 100-barrel brewery and open up 12 new states of distribution. Grow small, thoughtfully, concentrically from your brewery right now. Don't go big if you're small. But if you're big, if you're a top 80 brewery, you better get ready to build a great sales force, add a lot of people, add a lot of strong marketing plans, or you're going to just go down your distributor's totem pole and be forced to either go back and retrench and be local and small or go out of business.
0: Yeah, that's really great advice, and you know, I, you mentioned something like don't don't go build the hundred barrel brew house, right? If you're if you're small tap room focused, but what happens if one becomes available for uh, you know twenty five cents on the dollar? What do you do then?
2: Then you've been able to go big while spending small, and that's a beautiful thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we'll probably see some of those opportunities, and it's going to be really amazing to watch how this all unfolds. I mean, I've been. Covering the space now for eight years, and for a while there, it was just every single day we were writing about you know new expansions. And now it seems like the storyline, or the storyline for the last year and a half, two years, has been craft sales are slowing. And I'm really interested to see what the next storyline is. And I suspect that a lot of it'll be like you said, brewery closures, but probably some positive stories in there too.
2: I don't doubt it. There's going to be a lot of positive stories. (laughs) All right, Sam. Well, thanks so much for the time. Always good catching up with you, Chris. Cheers. Thanks for the chance.
0: All right. That was our interview with Sam Calagione. A lot of amazing stuff from Sam, as always. Uh, We covered a lot of ground during that interview. I think one of the more interesting parts of the conversation, at least for me, was the discussion around pricing and the concerns that Sam has about the, quote, commodity commodification. I always get that wrong. Commodification <laughs> of craft. And I guess that's where I want to start. Justin, we're seeing a lot of products that Sam uh, referenced, you know, these lighter offerings that are sold in $15, 15 packs. I think he said buck a beer. What do you think about Dogfish Head's strategy of trying to remain more competitive price-wise with some of its core offerings while still trying to maintain that uh, top of the pyramid pricing and, and their position as what Sam said is that the number one strongest price craft beer in the country?
1: It's a smart play and just a sign of the times. Uh, Dogfish isn't straying too far from its ethos of maintaining that higher end pricing, but they are competing for consumers who are buying Lagunitas IPA and Founders All Day IPA, you know, that upper jaw of death that Sam likes to talk about. And both of those beers are competitively priced. And then there's the bottom job death, as Sam would say, the locals. So Dogfish is, you know, caught in this push-pull that they have to compete. So Sam's just taking his shot.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I think it's a difficult sell in a lot of cases to convince consumers that they should spend extra money on a product like 60-Minute IPA, um, especially in markets where there, you know, are similar beers that are produced locally, either line priced with a 60 minute or in some cases cheaper. So um, I think it is smart to kind of look at those markets and to begin to reevaluate, you know, where dogfish is priced on the shelf. And and I guess I would like in some ways share his concern that the category risks becoming uh, commodified as more of these cheaper, lighter offerings emerge. That being said, you mentioned this sort of push pull and I, I, I sort of wonder whether consumers are asking for these products or whether brewers are the ones kind of pushing them out to market because they're trying to fill tank time or they feel the need to compete in that light beer segment. and. I think Mike Stevens from Founders says, you know, kind of punch through the ceiling and, and offer these more mainstream offerings. So I'd sort of question, like, how much of it is the consumers demanding these products and how much of it is just brewers delivering it because, you know, they've got to pay attention to their bottom line as well. I think we could probably spend an entire podcast debating that. But, you know, what, what were some of your other takeaways? The other big takeaway for me is Sam's getting calls from
1: other brewers seeking help. That really stood out to me as another sign of the times. I mean, can you imagine someone blowing up Sam Calagione and saying, hey, can you buy my brewery or can you form a collective to sort of help us survive?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's not that surprising to learn that, you know, people are calling him to maybe ask for advice. But the notion that there are a number of breweries out there that are maybe suggesting to him that they need to get purchased or that there should be some kind of roll-up that he puts together. And, and, you know, obviously there are those types of groups out there. We had Lynn Weaver on last week, part of Canarchy, and um, there are others, you know, Victory and Southern Tier. I think Stone was trying to do something with Truecraft, and we haven't really heard much about that. Um, and so I, I guess it is sort of interesting to me that there are people, I guess, wanting more options. And it's surprising that they would call Sam because Dogfish Head
1: hasn't been a buyer in in these types of deals.
0: Yeah, I wonder how much of it is like people looking at their deal with LNK and thinking, well, hey, they you know, they tapped into private equity dollars. I wonder if there's something in it for me, or I wonder if there's a creative option here. But I guess sort of the bigger thing that this suggests, at least to me, is that man, there there are probably a lot of people out there saying, like, oh shit, like what's <laughs> happening? I, I need I need to figure this all out and I don't, you know, I don't know how to navigate this moment. So I think that was kind of the big takeaway there. Oh, exactly. I mean, a lot of this is passion projects, right?
1: Uh, these are there are a lot of people who get into this who are geologists or, you know, former accountants or whatever. An accountant, you would think that they would know on the
0: <laughs> on the financial side. They but, at least can put some good spreadsheets together.
1: Yeah, maybe they can balance a, a sheet, but you know, like making beer is a whole other animal altogether.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, with 7,000 breweries or soon to be 7,000 breweries, um, you know, I guess it's to be expected that these types of phone calls are, are coming in. But I don't know, something about like calling, picking up the phone and calling Sam Caligioni and asking him to buy your company does kind of sound a little funny to me. The other thing, too, that I, I really kind of found a little bit strange, to be quite honest, was um how prominently they're going to be putting the the seal, the Brewers Association's independent seal on their packaging. I have, I guess, in theory, like no issues with any company wanting to, you know, prominently display that seal on their, on their packaging. That's their decision. If, if they think that it's going to increase sales for them or do whatever it does for them, help them stand out on the shelf, distinguish their brands from the, the ones that are owned by Anheuser-Busch or Miller Coors or any of the other larger companies, fine. But Sam is putting it on like like a third of his package. I mean, it's taking up a sizable chunk of a six-pack, and that, to me, to see that image, um, that was just, I don't know, it was kind of strange to go that heavy on it.
1: It's really striking. I'm not sure how I feel about it, to be honest. It's, it's one of those things where I'm still processing it and trying to decide—
0: you know it, it's just it's almost as big as the logo isn't it yeah it's like it, it to me it almost takes away from the dogfish brand that he's been building over so many years and i don't know why you would want to invest so much physical space on your package to something that you don't own and you know we sort of talked about that but he's i mean he's making a big bet and he's hoping that by doing so you know he'll stick out Uh, alongside a a Lagunitas IPA, which can't use that seal.
1: Exactly. One of the things that stands out to me about that is we're going to know whether this is working or not, because if that logo starts shrinking or it disappears, it's going to be obvious to everyone. Yeah. I mean, you can't hide that at this point, which a lot of brewers can because they've only, you know... Put what is it? Maybe quarter-sized or or small match-sized upside-down bottles on their products.
0: Yeah, like the size of like a UPC barcode or whatever. Exactly. So if if this is not working, we're gonna know it because we're gonna see it. Yeah. Yeah. That is that is a really good point. If it doesn't move the needle, or if they decide to change their strategy, like I mean, you're gonna know it right away. And. I guess then the question becomes, like, what does that say about the seal itself? Does it does it do more harm than good for the Brewers Association? Like, yeah, sure, it's great now that they have, you know, one of their largest, most recognizable members making such a big move. But if it doesn't work and they decide to back away from it, like, that's almost even worse, right? Yeah, I think that's, that's the whole point there, right? I yeah. mean, but it, what a coup it is for the
1: Brewers Association to get someone like Dogfish Head to put it on so
0: prominently yeah I mean that's a that's a big win for them for sure and I guess your sort of final takeaway that you had jotted down here was the, the thing that he left all of our listeners out in uh, beer world with which is a little piece of advice what stuck out to you there? I don't think he's trying to like crush hopes and dreams but he's saying
1: you know if you're gonna be big, be big yeah if, if you're gonna be small, be prepared to stay small. Like you're not going to be a big
0: brewery or else you're going to be an anomaly if you're going to be the next big brewery. Yeah. I think it's like uh, he had mentioned something about, you know, the sort of days of building like a hundred barrel brew house and expanding into 12 States, I think is what he said are kind of gone is, is sort of what he was alluding to. And, um, really kind of driving home the point to a lot of people out there that it's like stay stay close to home, sell as much beer as you can close to home, you know, focus on the sales in your tap room, go a mile deep before you go a mile wide. And, you know, we've seen a couple of companies um, kind of go out and try to go after that mile wide approach. And I don't know how successful it'll be, but I think at any point in in the entire, you know, Uh, length of the the brewing industry, if you look at it, like right now is the time to hunker down and, and stay close to home, unless you've kind of already shot the gap and you're a dogfish head and you have no other choice but to go national. But if you're just getting going or you're a few years in, yeah, stay close to home. It's going to be really
1: interesting to see who sort of retrenches in the next couple of years, five years, whatever it is, pulls back and is no longer sort of you know, in multiple states. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to say nationally distributed because th- there are only so many.
0: Yeah, and it, it, it will be interesting to see how many of the breweries that are a little bit newer that did expand and, you know, start broadening distribution into some... Uh, non-local markets, or at least, you know, concentric markets. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens to those brands. But, I mean, it requires so much investment if you're going to do that. And that was another thing that Sam sort of hinted at. His last point
1: maybe his best point. He, I think he said, uh, if you can go big by spending small, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. It will definitely be a beautiful thing for anybody who can capitalize on some of these pennies on the dollar deals that we're going to see coming down the line.
0: Yeah, I was going to say like about the only brand that could get away with that is Russian River, but then they just plunked 50 million into their uh, their new brewery. So they're spending big too. But at the same time, you know, I think they could probably seed uh, Pliny the Elder in any market in the country and that stuff would fly. Uh, who doesn't want Pliny? Yeah, Vinny, Natalie, if you're listening, um, Boston, we're waiting for you. Just send the Pliny out here. I'll take care of the rest. All right, well, that was Sam Calagione. Uh, pleasure to sit down with him, as always. Always appreciate his insight. Now let's get to some segments. Uh, Justin, you're up first. I've got a swipe right this week
1: for us. This is our version of Tinder for the beer industry. So we swipe right on ideas that we like and left on those that we're not attracted to. So Anheuser-Busch-owned Bluepoint took out an ad in the Sunday New York Times this week calling on Congress to make Election Day a federal holiday. They've started a Change.org petition and brewed a beer called Voter's Day Off that includes the petition right on the can. All right, I like this. Uh, What's the verdict for you? I'm swiping right on this. I think it's clever marketing. It's also just a good idea. Only 36% of Americans voted in the last midterm election. The majority of those who didn't vote cited work or school as the reasons why they couldn't get to the voting booth. How are you feeling about this, Chris?
0: yeah i'm I'm also swiping right on this uh and only because i'm terribly selfish and would just love another excuse to take a day off we don't really have an official uh vacation or day off policy here it's kind of take it as you need it and and i would love to be forced to take a day off so yeah voters day off let's make it a thing um i don't have to rush to get to the polls in the morning stress out about fighting traffic on my way back to work or waiting in line in the cold Um, Then I can just take the rest of the day off to walk around Boston proudly supporting my uh, I Voted sticker.
1: Yeah, I, I plan on proudly displaying my sticker while day drinking at all the fine establishments across the
0: city. Well, some of the uh, pop-up tap rooms, perhaps? Uh, if they're still open in early November. If the voters haven't voted to abolish them? <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's hope not. Uh, all right. So another uh, new segment for our listeners this week, we have a uh, buy them a beer. Uh, and I would actually like to buy umpire Joe West a beer. Did, did you see that Christian Vasquez throw in uh, the the first game of the alcs justin of course i did uh west must have an iron shoulder so for anyone who missed it joe west is like basically standing behind the pitcher and in front of second base and uh the astros jake uh, Marcinic is, is stealing second diving headfirst into the bag and vasquez like isn't even close to throwing him out. I mean, he's wildly off target here. Uh, The ball sails straight into Joe West's right shoulder, and Joe West took this thing like an absolute champ.
1: He got beaned and completely no-sold it like he was the WWE's (laughs) Undertaker, taking chops from Ric Flair. Woo! Woo! I'd
0: say it didn't hurt the socks, which... I'm all for. Yeah, in that moment, it actually helped the Sox. I mean, they ended up losing the game anyway, um, but it, it it actually helped because the ball would have just gone straight into the outfield. Uh, dude would have taken third base, and it just would have been a disaster. Um, but like, I gotta say, what like what on earth is Joe West thinking about here? Like, clearly he's daydreaming. I mean, he he's obviously thinking about like the pretzels and the hot dogs, the Fenway Franks, and. I'm, I'm going to bet like getting a frosty cold brew after the game. Uh, Maybe
1: he's thinking about Sam Adams that you've got the giant glowing sign out there. So Sam
0: deck, Sam deck, Yeah. Sam 76. And
1: I need a Boston
0: lager. Yeah. Mmm. Peanuts. Mmm. (laughs) peanuts. Well, this isn't
1: the first time he's been
0: hit. No, it isn't. It isn't actually in my internet search to find this video replay. I found that, uh, about four years ago, um, he'd got absolutely drilled on a line drive down the first baseline. And the dude, like he just straight up smiled and then like flexed after like, like like the guy is an absolute champ. So I want to buy this guy a beer. i Died when I saw him flexing,
1: which even drew cheers from Mets fans, which I think is a hard thing to do.
0: Yeah. He deserves a beer. So this is my official offer to Joe West. If the ALCS makes its way back to Boston, uh, the first round is on me. I'll buy the second. All right. (laughs) That's our show for this week. Uh, Thanks to all of you for tuning in wherever you're listening. Uh, We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Libsyn, and SoundCloud. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a rating and a review. Share the pod with your friends. And as always, thank you to our audio team, Josh and Joe, our guest Sam Calagioni, and everyone out there in beer world. Catch us next week for episode seven, which features an interview with Hops and Grain founder Josh Hare. Until then, cheers. Cheers.